Welcome to Oddly Influenced, a podcast about how people have applied ideas from outside software to software. Episode 37, Resilience Engineering with Lauren Hochstein. I like to think of myself as living a life balanced between the nitty-gritty impatience of industry and the deep thinking of academia, and it seems Lauren Hochstein does too. He's a PhD who gave up a tenure-track professorship for industry, including the very nitty-gritty of being a senior software engineer at Netflix. It was there that he became interested in resilience engineering. It seems to me Lauren does a good job of applying the insights of an academic-ish field to the realities of production software. Our specific topic here is how to handle a complex system falling down hard and especially how to then prepare for the next incident, because there's always a next incident. I really enjoyed this interview. It maybe stretches the theme of the podcast, but I don't care. It's interesting, and that's a good enough excuse. Today we have Lauren Hochstein, and we're going to talk about resilience or resilience engineering. And we're going to start from a paper called The Theory of Graceful Extensibility, Basic Rules that Govern Adaptive Systems by David D. Woods from 2018, where we end up, who knows. So so hi, Lauren. Hi, Brian. I, I'd like to start with something I do, which is to have me summarize what I think I understand and thus give you an opportunity to tell me what I've got wrong. I think the topic of resilience deals with a particular kind of problem. And since a lot of the examples in resilience engineering seem to come from emergency rooms, and since my wife used to be a clinician at the U of I vet school and did emergency duty, I want to start by saying what I think resilience is not about. When she got emergency cases, there would be crises, events, in the jargon, what they say is an animal is trying to die. And so they have to stop the animal from dying. Or on one memorable occasion, I was there and a large bovine got loose in the ward and was running around this sort of circular area. So she said, you go and climb up on that half wall and get out of the way. And they then managed to corral the cow and get it into a stall. All of those things are crises in some sense. They're, they're events, but they are unexceptional. They're things that they know how to deal with. They're well within their normal competence. A second example is one day one of those giant tractor-trailer semi-trucks with a, a very large number of cattle in it overturned on the highway just north of town. So they had to go and deal with it. Some of the animals had to be euthanized. So they basically had to go out there and do triage. And that's not the normal thing they did. It only happened once in 30-some-odd years. And I could imagine that being 
a different nature of crisis, but it seems to me that resilience, or at least this paper, seems to be most about is not a single event, but a series of events, one after the other, after the other, after the other, that stresses the system to the point where at some point it just breaks suddenly. Is that the problem domain? Uh, yeah, sort of. Uh, resilience deals with cases the system's not normally designed to handle. We didn't think about this in advance. It's sort of like at the, the edge of what the system is able to really deal with. So when we design our systems, we design it to handle certain cases. And when you hit a situation, a crisis, an incident that stretches you just to the boundary, just to the edge of what you can normally handle, just past that. So that's what resilience is about. So it's, it's crisis is a good term because crises are exceptional. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's an exceptional situation. It's not something you normally deal with. So resilience deals with how, to, how do systems succeed at, at dealing with cases that they weren't explicitly designed to handle. This particular paper is sort of another meta level about that. It's like, well, okay, a system can handle that once, but how do systems keep being able to do this over time. So you may at one point be able to handle an exceptional case, and maybe you you then over adapt to that case, and then the next one might break you. But some systems seem to be able to keep adapting. So resilience, part of it is about how do systems adapt to deal with situations they weren't explicitly designed to handle. And this particular paper is about sustained adaptability. How do they over time keep being able to adapt, keep being able to stretch every time they hit exceptional situations. Does that make sense? Yeah. In the paper, he describes three things that he calls failure modes. And I'm not sure I've got them right, but the first one is called decompensation. What does that mean? Yeah, so to understand decompensation, let's talk about compensation. So co compensation happens when you you have an additional stress on the system and then you do something to compensate. So in, in the software world, I've dealt a lot with like cloud systems. You can imagine a software service that's getting an increase in load. And so it starts to scale up. I don't know how familiar you are with auto scaling in the cloud, but since it's designed that you can request more compute resources. So that's a form of, of compensation. So you've had some additional load on you and you are compensating to deal with that. Decompensation is when you hit that limit. And then you can no longer, you're no longer able to effectively compensate. So you can imagine an autoscaling system that hits the max, and now it keeps getting more and more load, and it can't, it cannot scale up anymore. So, so what does it do? How does it deal with that situation? And some of them decompensate nicely, gracefully, like shed load, and some of them sort of fall over. So once you've you've hit that limit, how does the system, does it sort of bend or does it break? Uh, okay. And decompensation is it breaks, it hits that limit, and then all of a sudden it, it falls over and then it stops, stops servicing all of the requests, say. Uh, nothing okay. gets through. That would, that would be an example of, of decompensation. Okay, and the second failure, actually, before we get to that, his notion is that there is tangled, layered system of units, which I cannot find what the acronym stands for. Do you remember? Oh, uh, yeah, UABs, Units of Adaptive Behavior, I want to say. Okay. So you, you have these units, as I understand it. Units, in the case of, say, an emergency room, might be you know, physicians, yeah. nurses, interns, technicians. In the case of the overturned trailer truck, 
physicians and interns and such, plus also police who my wife gets kind of salty about how helpful they were not. <laughs> so they, those particular units, UABs, they didn't decompensate, they just stood around. Um, a second kind of failure mode then is what I have written in my notes as working at cross-purposes, locally adaptive, globally maladaptive. Can you expand on that? Sure. So here, if you think about uh, units as being, let's say, like teams in a company. So units are typically, individuals are a good example, but also you can think of groups of organizations, right? So teams, orgs, companies, things like that. If you and I are on different teams in a software company, and you and I are both trying to locally optimize for something, it is not globally optimal for the actual company to do things that way. You can imagine, for example, you, I mean, this is sort of a trivial one, but you, you want to buy some piece of software that will, some tool that will make you, you more productive, that will make the company more productive, but someone else is optimized for like keeping their budget at a certain level. And they say, no, I'm, I'm not going to approve that. Think of Pennywise Pound Foolish as, as an example of that. So each individual, we're trying to like optimize for whatever goals we have, but really the point of working in an organization is not to optimize your local thing, it's, it's for the whole company to succeed. An example that comes quickly to mind because I'm working on a script about the history of context-driven testing is in the bad old days when people used to ship software, a new version of Excel once a year or so. Toward the end of a project, the development side of the house was very intent on hitting the deadline the testing side of the house was intent on finding bugs, and that led to various kinds of maladaptive behavior, yeah. like the tendency of people to close bugs as works on my machine, works as design, so on and so forth. In some cases, I can definitely see that sort of spiraling as the developers were meaner to the testers, the testers were meaner to the developers, and so on and so forth. The whole DevOps movement is about how, yeah. I mean, a lot of it was that devs want to get features to deploy to production and ops does not want to break production, right? right. And, and so you, you saw people working across purposes, and I think that sort of spawned that movement. Okay. And the third kind of failure, this is the one I'm not sure of. But the note says models of adaptive capacity get stuck. If you have ever been in an incident with some software service and it's, it's down, it's not working properly, and you have some theory as to why it's broken. Oh, it's broken because service X broke. Because I remember service X broke six months ago. I'm sure it's service X. And you get stuck and you don't realize that, no, actually, your, your theory about what's broken is wrong. But you keep investigating that one line instead of more broadly. So this is often called fixation, where you, you're you convinced that problem is in one area and you haven't. Hmm. haven't. Yeah. In the pandemic, there was this theory early on about the way it transmitted was through formites, like on surfaces rather than through the air. And right. they sort of got fixated on, on that being the transmission mechanism. That That is a very, very common failure mode. People get, get fixated on one avenue and don't investigate more broadly about what the possible problem could be. So the, the focus of this paper is on theories, I guess, of how an organization can both 
not decompensate now, not have a failure in the particular situation you're in, but also how it can learn to be the kind of organization that doesn't allow problems to turn into crises. Yeah, or is effective at dealing with crises. I think crises are unavoidable in some sense, but there's a question of how mm. effectively you deal with them when they happen. So how well positioned is an organization to deal with that crisis once it happens? There is a, an interesting phrase, the phrase poised to adapt. What is he saying there when he says that? He's saying that you have to be ready to change the way you do things when, when something goes wrong. You need resilience when the way you normally do things isn't working, right? And so you, you have to be able to improvise and do something different than the way you normally would. So you don't know, you don't know exactly what you're going to have to do, but you, you're going to have to do something, something different, right? And so the ability to, to, to improvise a solution generically is important. I remember at one point at Netflix where we ran into trouble with some of the servers where we had to basically redeploy a very large number of services. There's some data that had gotten corrupted and some data feed that was being consumed. And we didn't have tooling to do that. We could, we could redeploy one service, but we, the system was not designed to redeploy N services for N as a large number. We got into a room, we started like a Google sheet where we kept track of you know, all the services that need to be redeployed. And then like we farmed out, people had to contact the individual service owners to do that. And so that being able to come up with a quick solution to solve that particular problem is an example of being able to, being ready to adapt. So we had the, the war room that we could call people into and we had, you know, incident responders and stuff. So we were ready to bring people together to solve a problem, even if we didn't know exactly how they were going to solve it. So you, you both had the infrastructure that allowed you to do that. There was a dedicated war room uh, for such things, but you also had people who were capable of doing that. It just occurred to me, one of the things my wife said when I was talking to her earlier is they called up a bunch of farmers and had them bring their little cattle trailers out. Now I think of it, it was kind of like Dunkirk with all the little <laughs> sailing ships going and rescuing the soldiers. You had all these farmers coming and rescuing the cattle. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a great example of, so when you hit these problems, often you need additional resources. And ideally you've previously invested in them and you have them ready to deploy, but in some cases you don't have that. And so you have to figure out how are you gonna marshal resources to do this. So that's an example of, of coming in and sort of marshaling resources that weren't explicitly designed for this, but you, you had access to people who could bring them in. And so being able to bring in sort of resources dynamically like that to help solve a problem is, is a big part of, of resilience. How do people get good at this? That's a great question. And I would say that as a practitioner, we think people get better at it by reflecting on the crises that have, that have happened and how we dealt with those. There's a, a movement, I guess you could say, called learning from incidents that is big on mm -hmm. this. People who have we don't know exactly what they're going to need to be able to do, but they understand the systems well enough that they can improvise effectively. And the way you get better, I think, at fostering expertise is learning from how things, you know, learning about your system and learning from incidents is a great way to do that. Yeah. So I do occasionally read the various case studies that people put up, which I think is amazingly public spirited for people to say, and here is this horrible thing that happened to us and dot, 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 dot. Actually, is the 
aviation industry is pretty famous for that, are they not? They are, yeah. They're famous for these detailed incident reports of things. And they're also very famous for reporting of near misses. There's a system where people can anonymously report anomalous things that, uh, that they have seen. Uh, so they, they gather a lot of information, not just about sort of big things that have happened, big near misses, but even minor things. There, there's a lot of, of signals that they are collecting, qualitative signals, and they try to learn from those. It probably probably shouldn't need to be said, but probably does need to be said. I think it's the case that the NTSB, the National Traffic Safety Board, are famously not about assigning blame. And you nodded, so I take it that is correct. Yeah, I, I believe that's the case. Yeah. With transportation, this, the incidents are public, right? And so they can produce reports. One of the challenges in our field is that you're not compelled to do a public write-up. Some companies will do that for their customers. Some of them, as we know, will do it publicly, but not everyone does. My, my former employee, Netflix, does not do public incident write-ups. I, I think you see it more in companies where the customers are, are software engineers. I think it's like a, a confidence-building thing, mm. whereas, whereas the ones that are consumer-facing generally tend not to do it as much. I, I imagine the hallway track at conferences for people like you has a lot of interesting stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was recently even um, the first Learning from Incidents conference happened back in February, and they had an off-the-record track. Yeah. So they tried to actually bring that to a more traditional session where people could talk about it. The LFI folks took that from the security folks have done that for a long time. They've had off-the-record sessions. But yes, the hallway track is always where you, you hear a lot of the interesting stuff. People love to talk about stories, right? So we probably cannot get you to tell inside stories of Netflix here for broadcast, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can say some things. There are some things I can't say. But I was on the central incident management team there called Core for a little over a year. And so I saw a few uh, interesting ones. Here's an example of getting stuck in, in a stale model. There was an incident where I was the incident commander where one of the symptoms was an increase in TCP retransmits. Some people were convinced that the problem was a networking problem, and they were like, let's bring in AWS, and it was not actually. The problem was not networking, but the, a symptom was that you saw a networking metric go up. And so there was actually even a big argument at one point about that in the, in the war room. And I just remember that very vividly. That's a good example of, of fixation. You see a signal and you say, okay, that problem is there. And it turned out that actually it was CPU usage was really high and it was starving the, the networking stack. And so that's why it was missing some things and, and retransmitting. Netflix does tracing of requests through our system. And we, because there's a lot of traffic, it, we sample the traces. So like only 0.1% of requests are actually traced. There had been a bug and it had accidentally increased to like 100%. So uh, <laughs> every request was being traced. And it was very difficult to figure out what the heck was going on because all of a sudden CPU usage was rising across all different services and we had no idea why. Uh, mm -hmm. That was a very uh, interesting and challenging incident. I actually don't know much about this, but physicians famously do differentials where they list a, a set of, here are the various possible causes in some rough order, and then they proceed to try and, in a fairly systematic way, to find out which of the differentials is the most likely. Do they have, it's not rote, but methodical procedures for doing this based on past experience? So I would say we don't have process like that. One thing that we end up doing, though, is we end up 
building dashboards that are plot different signals. And those dashboards are updated over time based on previous things that have happened. Oh, in this incident, there was a, I don't know, memory leak or whatever. We should, we should watch memory usage more closely. And so the dashboard structures are sometimes an artifact of, of history. And that's, that's a challenging thing. So one of the challenges is like the fighting the last war problem where you, you over-index on the thing that happened most recently. And so the better dashboards are actually more generic-y, I would say. So they help you narrow down where the problem is. Whereas ones that are less well-designed, they're, they're sort of a, a history of previous incidents. And like, is it this one? No. Is it that signal? No. But I would say that generally tends to be where the, the knowledge is encoded in the, in the dashboards. There is, I have not seen people use explicitly, like, here's a process that we are going to use to figure out what's going on right now. I know Brendan Gregg, who is a performance engineer who used to be at Netflix, I think he's at Intel now, has documented a process called use, usage saturation and errors for troubleshooting, but that's not so much used. It's like during an incident, it's tricky because you have to stabilize the patient as well as you're not necessarily trying to figure out what exactly is a problem. You want to get the system healthy, right? And then you can figure out exactly what's going on. I mean, and that's, that's a part of resilience engineering too. So you're doing these diagnostic interventions, but also you're doing therapeutic interventions. Even if I don't know what's going on, I need to make sure it is still up and, and servicing customers. Yeah, it occurs to me when I was first courting my wife 35 years ago, I thought how nice it is that if something goes wrong with my program, I can just restart it. <laughs> but you can't reboot the cow and put it into a known good state and run it forward. That's very true of your field, right? These systems don't get restarted. No, right? We cannot cold start the system. You cannot turn these large systems off and back on again. They're much more like organic living systems. The one other thing about the NTSB, I'm less sure of this, but... They don't look for root causes per se, the cause of an accident, because it, there's never the cause. There is a collection of unlikely events. Is that also considered the case in resilience engineering? Yeah, that's definitely the case in resilience engineering. And my Twitter handle is no root cause because no. of that, right? So, <laughs> so it's deliberately chosen because the, the perspective in resilience engineering is that it is always a collection of, of contributing factors. People argue about this a lot. I think it is really like a perspective, like a lens. You can always point to something and call it a root cause if you want. You will learn more about the system. You'll get better if you see it as a set of, of contributing factors where not, not any one of them is the cause. And, and the reason is that the goal of looking at these incidents is to get better in the future, right? And you don't know which of those factors, like learning about it will help you next time, right? It might be that factor A was not the root cause in this case, but it was gonna be a problem next time. One example that's big in resilience is, is the idea of production pressure. No one ever has enough time to do the work at the level of quality that they want to, we're always squeezed for time because we've got to get stuff out. The company has to stay viable. You're never going to call production pressure the cause anytime, but it's endemic. It's everywhere. And if you don't see it, if you say, well, he screwed up here, you know, he had a limited amount of time. And so when you have less time to do tasks, you, you make more errors. So you're never going to see production pressure if you just identify a cause. It will never be the cause. It'll always be, well, the person made an error here. But if you understand the role that production pressure plays in the way people make decisions, 
then you will get a better understanding of how incidents happen. One of the things that um, I've forgotten the name of the author emphasizes is that the pressure for optimality or efficiency, I guess, pushes against what he calls graceful extensibility. So first, what is graceful extensibility? The extensibility actually comes from software. I mean, we build our software to be extensible, right? We can modify it over time, right? And, and old code can call new code, for example. So we want our systems to be extensible over time. The nomenclature comes from graceful degradation. And graceful degradation is when you hit your limit, you don't just fall over. So for example, I don't know if you've, if you've ever used a streaming service, but it remembers where you were when you come back to a video you watched halfway through. And there's a service back, the bookmark service that keeps track of that. If that service fails, it shouldn't prevent you from watching your show. Graceful degradation is it just starts at the beginning. The quality of the experience is degraded, but don't just get an error thrown in your face. So the idea of graceful extensibility is when a system hits the limit of what it's, it's designed to do, it is able to extend that limit a little bit. It's able to do a little bit more than it, than it was actually designed to handle in order to deal with the, the current crisis. Woods talks about extending the competence envelope, being able to handle a little more. So, you know, imagine that your system is, is at maximum load, you, you can't scale up anymore. And so you, you make some change that you weren't really designed to handle so that you reduce the, the CPU usage or whatever, so you can handle a little more load. That's an example of, of graceful extensibility. The system's ability to change itself when it hits a limit to be able to deal with that limit. When you're saying system, you're talking about a socio-technical system. The people are always, usually, the actors that are causing the extension, possibly using things in the technical side to give them levers that they can push on to cause a little bit of extensibility, a little bit of extension. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the idea of, of the units of adaptive behavior. They're able to do things they weren't explicitly designed to. Like people are, are very flexible. People can go in and change the way they work. They can change the system. We don't know how to build software today that can adapt that way. Maybe in the future, the software could be adaptable, but today the units of adaptive behavior are invariably human-based because we're the only ones that can really adapt at that level. Oh, but large language models will be doing it for us any minute now. <laughs> so let's see what else I have in my notes. I'm just gonna throw out phrases that I wrote down and you say something wise about them. <laughs> Or I'll just edit it out if you don't have anything wise to say. Fair. So one of the phrases that struck me was miscalibration is the norm. So we all have a mental model of how the world works, how the system works. And it's always incorrect in some way. One of my favorite examples of contributing factors that I saw at Netflix was I'm on a team. Then there's another team that deploys on Wednesdays, say, and I know they deploy on Wednesdays and I need their code to go out first before mine, so I'm gonna deploy on Thursday. But actually this week something happened and they were late. They had to deploy on a Friday. I didn't know that. I deployed on Thursday, it broke. So I was miscalibrated. My mental model of when they deploy was, was wrong in that particular case. Basically we all have models of how the world works and our models are never perfect and they're always incorrect in some kind of dangerous way that we don't know of in advance until it bites us. That, that's sort of the, the miscalibration is about. That gets back to poise to adapt. 
I like to use the model of tango because my wife and I used to dance tango. Tango is a dance where you are in balance and then the leader pushes or pulls the follower off balance and the follower has to turn that movement into a graceful transition to a new point of balance. And you just keep on doing that over and over again. The problem the follower has is that any given point of balance, the leader will have, let's say, four different possibilities of the next push or pull. If the follower tries to anticipate what the next move is going to be, 75% of the time they're wrong, and then they've already committed to a movement. They've, they've over-fixated Thus, they won't be able to perform the actual move gracefully. So a hard thing for a tango follower to learn is to just let the leader move you. There's a particular look that followers have, which is called the tango look, and which is this look of being poised. A lot of tango training, at least from the follower's point of view, is this learning of this sense of receptivity. And it's an explicit part of the training. Is there any kind of movement for that to try to teach people who are doing resilience to have that poisonness to adaptiveness? That sounds very woo-woo. While editing this episode, I cringed at my description of tango. I made it sound way too crude, what with all the pushing and pulling. It would be more correct to say that a good leader suggests to the follower how she might put herself off balance. A lot of the point of tango is subtle and two-way communication. See the show notes for a better description taken from David Turner's A Passion for Tango. The point about the need to be poised, the need for the follower to be reactive rather than proactive, still stands. I love that that example, the tango dancing. So I think of two things. One of them is that there's a temptation to try to plan out everything, which you can't do. So like run books are a good example of that. We're going to pre-define the problem scenario so that you can go and look them up, follow the instructions when things, when things happen. And where you run into trouble is when you have a problem that the run book was not designed to handle. You can't rely on a run book. You need to be able to improvise. You need to be able to ready to handle, be handle anything, not like a particular failure mode. The other thing, and it's a very big thing in, in resilience, and you can see it in this paper, is that you can't, you can't solve these problems alone. So you always have to coordinate with other people. Your understanding of the system is partial, mine is partial, but together we have a better understanding of everything. Coordination is really hard. It's a very, mm-hmm. very difficult problem for human beings to do. And the more you know your teammates, for example, the better you're going to be able to coordinate with them effectively. You can see it today, especially in this distributed world we have. We don't have a war room anymore. It's all over like Slack and video chat, and it's not the same. The, the bandwidth of, of communication is, is lower. And so being able to coordinate effectively is very important, and it's a hard problem to solve. Uh, and all these things, I would say, because they're kind of generic, it's practice and experience. Uh, doing it. I mean, you get better at these things by by doing them more. Yeah, I should note that the leader has more of an opportunity to plan. But if you plan, I'm going to do the following moves that's going to end up in this graceful back ocho that she does. 
And as soon as you execute step one of the plan, some clown dances into the spot you wanted to go to. So learning how not to get trapped by plan seems to be kind of a consistent theme of my life and the software industry over my lifetime. One of the problems is being able to adapt quickly. One of the, one of the problems you sometimes see is that people are not empowered to make decisions. They have to run it up the chain. And the world is moving faster than your ability to get approval for things. Mm -hmm. And that's another example of decompensating where you cannot keep up with events because it's taking you too long to make changes because you have to get approval from, from above. But you can't just push all the initiative down and not coordinate because then you have the cross-purposes problem. And so you have to figure out how to solve both those problems at the same time. I just realized that I didn't finish part two of the pressure for optimality versus graceful extensibility. This is the old trade-off where the more efficient you are, the less poised you are to adapt. How do you get people to understand that when they're setting budgets? And what, what does it mean to set a budget to be more ex gracefully extensible? I wish I knew the answer to, <laughs> to that. I remember listening to a podcast by a, a safety guy. He was on a flight sitting next to someone who worked at one of the shipping companies like UPS or FedEx. And they actually fly an empty plane around the country mm. uh, that they can deploy if one of them, you know, one of them becomes unavailable. And that is not efficient, right? That's an example of having additional capacity that you can deploy. And it's really, it's expensive. One thing Netflix does do well is they have this core team, this team of engineers that are basically there on standby during an incident. You could use them to build software and they're, they're not doing high priority software work. And that was justified. And one other interesting example from Netflix, one way to do this to, to justify it is to have a big crisis that freaks the company out. Like how do you sell insurance? Well, your house burns down and next time you'll buy insurance, right? Um, Netflix had an enormous like outage in 2012 on Christmas day when Amazon had a problem with one of its regions. I think they were out for like 24 hours. And that got seared into the, the DNA of the company. And they invested enormously in being, uh, being able to handle a regional Amazon failure. So now, now Netflix runs out of multiple geographical regions. They can do failover. So if there's a problem in one geographic region, they can actually move traffic to other ones. They, they test this out on a regular basis. Last time I checked, it was like every two weeks or something like that. Um, it's really expensive. They have a lot of extra capacity, but it was justified because it was so painful when it happened before. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is how do you convince people to buy the insurance before the tragedy happens? And, and you know, I wish I knew the answer to that because I, I, I don't. I think you have to have people high up in management who believe in this stuff. Right. And, and so you have to win over minds. There's this thing in, in resilience called the law of stretch systems, which says that anytime you have additional capacity, it's eventually going to get eroded over time. It'll get used up for other things. And so there's this constant fight that you have to do to, to preserve that, that capacity. And I think uh, the best I could think of is to make as many people aware of this as, as possible. But really what happens is they don't invest in it. And then there's a big outage. The organization freaks out, they invest in it more, and then there's like a cycle, the cycle kind of repeats. Well, telling stories like that helps. You mentioned falling behind, communicating up the chain. There's a 
a couple of links that are given in the paper to a financial firm that misdeployed the wrong software and couldn't get approval to stop trading for some ridiculously small amount of time. It was like 10 minutes, I think. But in that 10 minutes, they lost $500 million. That tends to catch people's attention, I guess. Let's see, what else do we have? We have boundaries discovered via surprise. Boundaries is a popular metaphor in this world. The original boundary metaphor, I think, comes from Jens Rasmussen, a safety researcher, pretty active in like in the 70s and 80s. And he had this model that's become very popular where the system is a point in a phase space and there's three boundaries. One of the boundaries is the economic boundary where basically if it gets too close to that system gets too close to that boundary, the company's not making enough money, it's going to fail. And so there's a push for efficiency away from that boundary. The other one is the workload boundary. The closer you get to that boundary, the more people have to work and people don't like to work too much. And so there's pressure away from that boundary for people to not have excessive workload. This is the efficiency thrown in straight off where they have more and more work. So you don't do as much, you don't spend as much time on each individual thing. And then the third boundary is the safety boundary, where if when you cross the safety boundary, the system a bad thing happens in the system. It's it's unsafe. But the system boundary is invisible. You don't actually know how close you are to that boundary. And so the idea is you test it out and see like how much more efficient can we get and we're still safe. The explicit sort of compute resource metaphor. How hot should you run your CPU? How much load should you expect Mm -hmm. a spike will be? Things like that. You, You don't know what's going to tip you over. And so you don't know exactly where to operate. So you sort of test it out. I was just wondering, is there, there does seem to be a lot of emphasis on things falling over and dying, whether immediately or after a period of degradation. Do people worry about, and should people worry about, gradual degradation that doesn't lead to collapse? Uh, Maternal death rates in the U.S. have doubled from something like 1991 to 2011 or something like that. There's no spike. It's just a gradual, oh, things are just getting worse. Do people talk about that? Let me interject here to correct what I said. It was from 1999 to 2019 that maternal mortality more than doubled in the U.S., no ethnic or racial group was immune. I linked to the Scientific American article in the show notes. Resilience is mostly about acute problems. This, that's more of a chronic thing. Concern generally where there's, a, there's a, a chronic degradation that you don't notice until it's too late and then it falls over, right? So like a memory leak mm-hmm. is an example. Your headroom is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but you don't necessarily notice. But then eventually it becomes a, a problem. So there's, there's an interest in that because the concern is always eventually this chronic problem becomes acute. And so there's interest in how do you detect when you're slipping like that? It's not affecting the, the company. So how much time should you spend looking at that, right? But then eventually it becomes a big problem and then it's too late. There's always this tension. One thing that I, I found really useful when I was on the, the incident management team is they spent a lot of, not downtime, they, they would look at like anomalies. Okay, there was an error spike and it went away, the system's fine, right? Well, like what happened there? When they would look at that, they would get practice with the tooling and they would understand, oh, that was because someone did a deploy, that server went down and there was a retry and, and you actually learn a lot. So they call those blipper doodles when there was a little anomaly thing, mm. uh, the system's actually okay, 
but we don't understand why that happened. Do you, do you investigate? And, and one of the things I tried to do is try to get people to look at those more. It's always a trade-off because it's always a more economically valuable thing to do, but that's a way of, of actually building experience, expertise with the system is when you can diagnose those things. It becomes actually very powerful. Before I worked here, I was like, oh, okay, it was, I don't, I don't know, it, it was like gamma radiation or something, like a bit flipped or something. Like you just, you just <laughs> sort of explain it away, right? We don't know what happened there. It was an anomaly. It's fine. But this, this idea that like nothing is fine, okay, I'm going to spend at least some amount of time looking into that. Maybe I'll, you'll want to time box it because sometimes you won't know. But right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit to investing some amount of time to looking at these things. Uh, it's, it's, I found it very valuable. And, and I think organizations that do that benefit a lot. But it's, once again, hard to justify. Let's do one more. Capacity for maneuver. Once you hit a crunch, once you hit the crisis, how much flexibility do you have? What can you actually do in that situation? Here's an example. Talking to someone after an incident at Netflix where they had diagnosed the problem by searching into the box and bringing up a REPL in the production system. And I had no idea you could even do that with, with that software. And he was able to, and he was able to like inspect okay. the system and, and figure out. And there are people who freak out at the idea of, of being able to run a REPL in production. But here, it actually gives you a lot of capacity for maneuver. It's like it's a generic ability to go into the system and do things. Historically in Netflix, they've been good about letting the software engineers SSH into the boxes. That gives us capacity to go in and make changes. So the more you're able to actually change the system when you hit a crunch, the, the mm -hmm. better off you, you are. So humans who are around to do that and have the expertise and there's the, the whatever resources you've invested in advance to enable them to be able to do that is capacity for maneuver. For People who might not be familiar with the jargon, a REPL uh -huh. is basically a command line of sorts. Final question. Not everyone works at Netflix. How would you want people who work at smaller shops that nevertheless have systems that have to stay up and have some of the properties of a Netflix-type system, how should they think about this? Because they can't do everything Netflix does. One thing is that, you know, we're all, regardless of our size in the software world, building distributed systems that fail in weird, complex ways. You don't have to be Netflix size. If you've deployed something in the cloud, you depend on a whole bunch of different systems that you have no control over. And you're going to see weird, complex failures in your time, large or small, that's going to happen. I think having the learning from incidents perspective and developing expertise in your systems that is independent of the size of the system. I think it's worth reflecting on, on your instances as they happen and understanding how people actually solve the problems, what was hard, what was confusing. You may not be able to build a multi-region, that doesn't make sense, multi-region failovers. You may not have the money for the compute capacity and hiring extra people, but you can fight for spending the, the reflection time to deepen your own expertise in the system. And, and I actually think that will, regardless of the size of the system, that will make you a better engineer. A lot of this stuff is, there's two parts. There's parts that are extremely specific. There are skills that I developed at Netflix that are going to effectively be useless to me anywhere else. There's very general ideas about the nature of how humans interact with software and how complex systems fail that are, are forever things. And so I think even at small companies, it's, it's just as important and probably easier because you have more influence over the a little more power of the organization because it's smaller. Would you recommend engineering a Christmas Day big catastrophe that will convince everybody to give you the budget needed? What I would say to that is you don't have to 
plan to have a major outage, it'll happen. I promise <laughs> okay. I, you have to be ready, right? You want to be ready when the organization has this Christmas day existential crisis thing, say, look, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. Wait for it and watch the opportunity. Yeah. You don't have to engineer it. I promise you it'll happen. But when it does, you should be ready and you should be able to articulate why it's worth investing resources in the future. I think that's an excellent place to stop. That's a, an inspiring ending. For me, it's an inspiring ending, unless you have something even more inspiring to say. No, I think that's the best I can do. Well, this was a very, this was a very pleasant conversation. And um, I guess it's over now. <laughs>